Hi, you're listening to a podcast of the best bits of Breakfasters for week ending May 19. We're on Triple R every weekday morning from 6 to 9 a.m., broadcast live from Melbourne, Australia. Coming up on this podcast, Michael Harden shares his report from a fact finding tour of the restaurants of France. Vanessa Taholka looks into the rise and recent closure of BuzzFeed News. And Triple R's own Cerise Howard shares her vision as newly appointed director of Melbourne Queer Film Festival. Clinical director for Werribee Vet Hospital, Dr. Liam Donaldson, takes us through the process of a pet giving blood. Spoiler, they love the liver treats. Fee Wright reviews the anniversary by Stephanie Bishop and shares her two cents on buffets and cruises. And who's winning them and why? We serve up a well overdue interrogation of colouring competitions. Film reviewer Megan McHugh takes us to Italy with Jane Fonda and friends as she gives her impressions of Book Club, the next chapter. But we start the week looking at some of the do's and don'ts of public speechifying. Woo! <sighs> That's right. Triple R. I'd be curious, or I'd want to ask both of you, Hat. Have either of you kind of given a speech at a certain occasion or whether it be back in high school at a wedding that one you, you've been quite proud of or happy with? Gosh, it's such a. I know, I've really question. put you on the spot. I mean, definitely the speech I've been proud of. I mean, I've been asked to do it a couple of speeches, sometimes at like friends' birthdays. Yes. Like or in situations where everyone is invited to say a few words, which is always very lovely. Yes. I've emceed at a couple of weddings,、uh, but I always thought that was a mistake that、okay. anyone asked me. I felt like I needed an emcee. No, I think you would、MC. be an excellent emcee. I mean, It's it, a big responsibility. I think I, I felt the weight of it quite heavily, but I did enjoy it very much. Like, it's such a huge honour, but I was, I was much more nervous than anyone else、of、on、course. the occasion. <laughs> I was going to say, did you low key resent them for no. us? <laughs> no, I'm just like low key anxious about every possible social situation imaginable, and this was. <laughs> this was definitely amplified. Which is why I asked, because it just seems like anyone who knows you would know that would be quite stressful <laughs> for you. But you speak so eloquently and、oh, beautifully. I can kind, completely I understand how or why they would ask you. But it's certainly, yeah, it's something I'm fascinated by that subject of speech giving, what makes a good speech. And I'm imagining both of you would have done numerous speeches over Not time. Not really. What about you, Daniel? How's your speech? I, I get enlisted to do speeches from time to time. I do like it when someone else steps up. Yes.、Uh, I enjoy that. And I can, I, I ghostwrite speeches for people as、uh, well. Well, this is it. This is, so I'm curious to get your thoughts on it because over the last two months, I've, been,、um, I've had two friends ask me to help with their speeches. And I am flattered、mm. that they asked me, and I've realised I spend way too much time working on their speeches. Like, well, it feels it, like when you're asked, like if you have a speech ahead of you, everything else gets cleared. Yeah, absolutely. And all you're thinking about is what are you going to say? One of them was a couple of months ago when I went to do the Adelaide Fringe. It was like a busy time. I was doing two shows and lots of gigs, and I remember I was staying with two other comedians, and then I'd be just at the table, like, Punching out stuff, work for like an hour or two every morning, and they'd be like, Oh, you're working on the show? I go, No, I'm working on a friend's best man speech. What are you doing? Like, I just completely put all of my focus on that.、Yeah. And I realize it's definitely because, like, you have skin in the game. It's like a great opportunity to show someone, like, I imagine you're like, Oh, look, I can do that. I can help you do a good job. I do have. You know, some skills maybe,、oh, but. Numerous. Oh, no.、Um, 
But yeah, I spend way too much time on it. How do you feel about being asked? Well, I'm happy to be asked and flattered. I do think my one hang-up about speeches would be if there is somebody who has had a difficult year yeah, and they are being celebrated, I think it's incumbent upon the person maybe closest to them yeah. to step up and share a few words summarising uh, their perseverance or heroism or yeah. – or grace, and so I—that's pr- probably a little bit judgmental. But I do if, do do it yourself. Don't be enlisting help for that kind of speech. Well, I think that if your you know partner has had is celebrating a birthday, you should make a speech. I was at a party on the weekend and the person whose birthday it was didn't want to make a speech. Hang on, back up. So you think every birthday I think for a significant birthday. Okay, great, great, great. Glad we cleared that up. I thought Daniel was just out here saying every birthday it's a speech it's speech time. No, I I think on a significant occasion Yes. Someone needs to step up. Yeah. And when they don't, I'm um Disappointed. Uh, I'm disgusted. <laughs> Have you ever pulled a friend aside and been like, "Look, I know, I know you don't love public speaking, but I really think you got to get up there, you got to ding the glass, and you got to say a couple of words. I can, I can help you now. Just keep it concise, keep it short, hit mm. three points. You can't bully them, and I've, I've encouraged and supported the idea, but you can't, you know, put a gun to their head and make them no. <laughs> stutter out some sentiments. That would make the news, I imagine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Actually, could I quickly ask you, if, for example, you found yourself in that situation where it was clear that someone needed to say something, no one was volunteering, and you sort of felt that you were in a position to do so. What, <laughs> what races through your mind? Like, what are your, I've got to deliver a speech in less than 30 second thoughts? Uh, well, I've done, I mean, I think it happens for Q&As as well, when there's someone at the front and it's like, okay, it's Q&A time, and then no one has any questions. Oh, yeah. So I'm like, all right, I'll step up. Yeah. So I, uh, you know, it's more a duty. Yeah, you feel that weight Mm. But it's, you know, it's fun and it's fine. But if no one else is doing it, then you step into the breach. Yes, and your mind is racing, configuring potential questions. Yeah, and and, uh, it's arguable that during the course of the evening, I've been contemplating the significance of the celebration Uh, anyway. Excellent. Now shifting on to drafting speeches. (laughs) Okay, so they're on, like, in the moment, on the spot, hot potatoes, tap dancing. (laughs) What about you're looking at a draft... What are your do's and don'ts, or what are you like? What are you putting the red pen through for a friend's speech at a wedding or something? I know my number one is like none of the the like disclaimers at the top, or what I can't stand for those of you who don't know me. Oh, forget so about it. Forget mm. about it. Make them know you. <laughs> <laughs> I get so over the top again. Real parent energy comes out of me. It's like no, <laughs> set the scene. They'll they'll know you by the end of the speech. Just quit it with the blubbering at the top. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So the, you're pushing back against the idea of assumed knowledge. Like the speech should shine independent of whether or not you know the speech giver. Yeah, and I don't even say sh- – I don't think it needs to shine. I'm definitely not about putting pressure on this person, but it's just like at the very least start confidently. 
you know? And it's not about, you know, kind of presenting yourself as this savvy, comfortable, like, public speaker. I'm all about, like, one of my friends was like, any tips on memorising my speech? I go, like, I know how I memorise things, but I go, if if that's not doable, like, it was short turnaround time as well. This friend came to me. It was just last week. There was a time difference and I was like, look, just like I'm fine with notes. I'm not sure what your thoughts are. I think there's some authenticity to to reading. As long as you've practiced, you've read it out loud, you know what the words sound like coming out and you can give emph- emphasis where it's needed. I don't know. Read from the paper. I think it's it's something charming about it. We're not all public speakers. I yeah, think. there's something of the yeah the letter writing and the public reading yes. in these contexts. My advice is, is use index cards because the shaking isn't as pronounced as yeah. paper. And so office works or something like this. That's yeah. right. Uh, I went to a wedding in Cambridge and there was a bloke who called himself the mayor of Cambridge. Of course he wasn't. <laughs> yeah. And he was just an insufferable blowhard. It was so amusing. And he yeah. didn't – he wasn't invited to do a speech, but he gave one anyway. Uh. <laughs> and there were Swedish people in the crowd – uh, and there, so every speech had to be translated. Uh-huh. And he got up and just extemporised this absolute garbage. <laughs> and then at the end, after, I'm not kidding, let's say 90 seconds, although I suspect it was more, mm. stopped and said, okay, maybe translate that. <laughs> and they said, you haven't said anything. Oh, I love that. Triple R. I'm hungry. I want something to eat. Something with a crunch and very sweet. What a coup to have back with us in studio, Globetrotting Gourmand, Michael Harden. Bonjour. Bonjour. <laughs> and that's the extent of my friend. Uh, uh, where have we been? Um, I was lucky enough to uh, take a trip to France recently and um, sort of ate like an absolute maniac in Paris and then was uh, also did a little trip around some regions, went to Champagne and Burgundy and the Jura, um, all regions that I actually haven't been to before. So that was, uh, that was very, very happy. And My very recollection happy. of Champagne is that it was a bit of a dump. Yeah, well, you know, it's sort of like, what are you going to do? That's why they drink. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, um, is, that, is that unfair? Do I just uh, misread it? Yeah, I think it's not like, you know, it's not sort of a rah-rah kind of landscape like you get in some parts of Italy or, mm. you know, it's kind of like it's, it's, a, it's a farming region, yeah. really. It's sort of like, you know, they're, they're, they're growing grapes and making amazing wine. Yes. What um, more do you need? Yeah, exactly. Mm. But, you know, a city like Rems is, is a beautiful city as well, like, you know, beautiful parkland and everything. But, you know, they're not – it's not like a huge, like, hotel culture or anything like that there. It's sort of like, you know, they are in the business of – it's a farming town, you know, but you can tell it's a lot of money, you know. It's a very well-kept farming town, but, mm. uh, you know, it's, it's not – they're not really there sort of interested, typical French, mm. in attracting tourists. <laughs> no, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, how many bistros did you think you frequented? Um, well, I was on a bit of a fact-finding mission with some people that were researching restaurants. So uh, in four days in Paris, we um, attended 25 <laughs> <laughs> Somebody's got to do it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, you, you know, it's sort of like, oh, here I am reporting from the front lines. Yeah. You know, it's sort of like ready for my walk leave. I mean, Thank you very much. So many questions, but I suppose 
to start with, when you visit that many restaurants in, in that amount of time, do certain patterns emerge or were expectations sort of challenged as to what's happening in Paris at the yeah, moment? Yeah, absolutely. It's sort of like it was really interesting to do it that way. Like, of course, you know, eating in that many restaurants, we didn't eat full meals in everyone. So, like, you know, we were, there was a, we had somebody with us that was very knowledgeable about um, the, the bistro scene in Paris, and so we would go into one that were um, fa- that was famous for oysters, for example. And so we'd go in at you know three in the afternoon after lunch, mm-hmm. and uh, and have some oysters, and like you know, and seriously, I they're the best oysters I've ever eaten yeah. in my life. It was like you know they were they're sort of because they're they're cold water oysters, you know they've got that really briny kind of salty sort of thing going on. One of the, I had these sort of largish oysters at one stage. I can't remember the exact name of them, but they were um, you know native to France, and uh, they were it was seriously like I, felt, I ate it, and it was like getting dumped in the surf. Mm. You know when you kind of like, you come up and you've got Goes sand in sand in your hair and a mouthful of seawater and it was like that's kind of what the oyster was like it wow. was in, it and was the emotional incredible. impact exactly as well. exactly it's sort of like i probably cried but, yeah. you know, so, yeah. where's my boogie board <laughs> <laughs> you're in paris i know it's sort of like you're not in newcastle yeah. anymore. <laughs> so what uh, how are they going there seems to be some kind of reappraisal of the french bistro every now and again yes uh does it modernize enough is it too rich I think, what are your observations? I think I think the Paris Bistro is definitely well. You know, the Paris restaurant scene in general is kind of it's really modernising. Like you know, I think even ten years ago, fifteen years ago, it was in a bit of the doldrums. There was a lot of kind of prepackaged food. There were people like you know, there was complaints that a lot of the Parisian restaurants were just tourist traps that were assembling food, not cooking food. You know, it was all getting cooked off off site and then sort of shipped in in plastic bags and then reheated and that sort of stuff. I feel like what we ate what, and what I observed just in the, these few days that I was there was like, you know, there's, it's a lot more multicultural than it used to be. There's a really good Japanese kind of stream going through at the moment. In fact, one of the, the best bistros that I ate in was, was uh, a place called La Chardonnoire and it's like an old school bistro, beautiful, like absolutely beautiful room, like everything that you like fantasize about a French bistro looking like you know it's sort of like a lot of brass and there was sort of ceiling murals and you know beautiful light fittings and all those sort of things but and they were doing like a traditional sort of brasserie menu but it had a lot of um, Japanese and sort of Asian general influences so you know when, when I was there there was white asparagus was in season which was just blissful you know everywhere you went there was like asparagus everywhere and white asparagus in particular and, so, and this restaurant did asparagus but they did it with like a miso glaze and it was so good you know really really beautiful and like that they did a sort of like an octopus like a raw octopus dish and and, you know had some radishes and things on it but they also had jalapeno peppers with it as well so it was sort of like in this very traditional French bistro setting but the food was quite modern and light like I think that's the other thing like went to um went to a very famous uh charcuterie a guy called Arnard Nicolas sorry all the French people out there that are wincing um (laughs) But they're like a really famous charcuterie restaurant, and they're doing like you know things like pate en croute, you know, with the it's with the pastry and in, inside like the meat inside the pastry that's sliced like a loaf. Mm. Um, he's doing these sort of versions of it that's much thinner, less pastry, less fat, and doing sort of lighter versions of it, and not stuff that's going to sit around for days. It's sort of like it's charcuterie that's meant to be eaten. So the like uh, the, one of the ones that um, that that I tasted was it, it was like a rabbit um, one, like sort of really light sweet rabbit meat with mint and broad beans and you know they're, they're kind of like a lighter fresher sort of thing less fat less pastry um you know you still there's still foie gras 
you know, coming at you from every direction, but not as used in smaller proportions and that that sort of thing. So it's sort of like a lighter, um, you know, I think it's probably always been there, but it's sort of like I feel like they're, they're clawing back the cuisine from, you know, what it, like the cliches of it, like even though that it's very regulated like french cuisine is very regulated you know you've got your restaurant and then you've got your brasserie and then you've got your bistro and then you've got your cafe and your, your bar and they're all they all have particular ways of doing things but it seems like there is sort of more of a modern kind of thing that's that's going on mm. with, with... am i crazy are there are some brasseries required by law to have some items on the menu or it's not it's probably well i don't know that for a fact but it's sort of like but it's not that you know, like exact, but it's sort of like you you know that you're going to go into certain brasseries and, you you, you know, you, there's just the expectations that you will be able to get oysters, you will be able to get steak tartare, you will yeah. be able to get French onion soup, you know, all of the, the ones that, you know, had some of the most magnificent, um, they do the, the, the poached eggs poached in red wine, which is just one of the oh. most delicious things that I've had. I've never sort of like, um, would never have kind of gone, that's exactly what I need right now. <laughs> but, uh, you know, but, but the way that the French do it, it's sort of like there's a, there's a precision to the cooking there that's sort of like that I really, really like, you know, even though it has a reputation of being very sort of, you know, sticking to its lane. But I think the more that younger people are sort of coming into these bistros and sort of taking over bistros, giving them a bit of a makeover and using that style um, and kind of like, you know, having that framework but then sort of like playing with it a little bit more. It's like it's actually a really exciting city to eat in Yeah, and have you mapped your fact-finding junket onto the food scene in Melbourne? Yeah, there's some real... Like, you know, I think the Melbourne food scene, like I think we like... Like a lot of Australian things, like, you know, it's sort of like you've got Aussie Chinese and you've got Aussie Japanese and, you know, kind of like, you know, we, we adapt like, sort of like within Melbourne. And I think like the Melbourne Melbourne French scene is good. Like obviously, you know, the granddaddy of them all, Francois in South Yarra, is still like a brilliant restaurant, very French, um, you know, kind of to the even down to the accents of the waiters, which I'm sure they're all actors. But, uh, but they, but it's a really good, like, you know, it's got its specials written on mirrors on the wall and it's like an, an astoundingly good wine list and, you know, kind of very French, all of those sort of things. But there's others, like, you know, one of my favourite places at the moment is um, Her, which is the um, multi-storey place on Lonsdale Street in the city. And the... the, the um, entry-level one on the, on the ground floor is her bistro or her bar, I think they call it. And it's very French, but modern sort of Australian kind of French. So, But it's got, got that feel to it. It's sort of like, so it feels really Parisian to me. The food's, you know, very good. And then you've got on the other end, you've got something like Entrecote and South Yarra, which is like a um, camp fantasy of a French bistro that's really fun, but, you know, camped down to the fact that there's a grand piano in the place mm-hmm. with somebody, you know, playing sort of romantic tunes on a Monday night. You know, it's kind of like that sort of stuff. And, like, it's all very, um, you know, everything that you would expect out of the, the cliché but done really well. So it's kind of like, you know, we're still... I feel like a lot of French restaurants in Melbourne still, like, stick to its probably closer to theme park than theme. Okay. Um, but at the same time, lots of fun. You yeah. Know, like the Smith Street Bistro, for example, is sort of like, you know, it's, it, it, like, it really engages and sort of steps, it leans into the whole theme park thing. But at the same time, you can get some really delicious garlicky snails, mm. you know, those sort of things. So it's, Can I ask, like, leaning into stereotypes and cliches, mm. how did you find the service in Paris? Because that kind of always, you know... Sen- pretty sensational, I okay. have to say. You know, I yeah. kind of feel that pa- the Parisians have kind of 
that era of being snooty mm. about everything. It was really interesting because we were eating like Australians. So we were kind of um, sharing lots of things where it wasn't like we were in one super high end restaurant mm. and we were sort of passing plates to each other to sort of so we could try and they were like the look of horror <laughs> on their faces and they were sort of running at us trying to take <laughs> the plates away from us and everything but it's kind of like once they realize you know you just sort of make sure that you, that, you know that, that they realize when they realize you're Australian yes they kind of lean back and they, they go ah oh, you know that that's fine you know yeah. I think as long as you're not English they're they're quite happy okay, but, they're okay. Uh, <laughs> but yeah but the service was the service generally was really good and uh you know what didn't didn't have a problem with it all there. Yeah. and are there any preconceptions about French food that the French restaurants in Melbourne require customers to get over or overcome mm. in order to enjoy it um, yeah, I think, you know, it's sort of like you've got to be a little bit fond of offal. <laughs> so, you know, it's kind of like, because I think, you know, one of, um, one of Francois's greatest dishes, I think, that I eat every time that I eat there when I get the, get the opportunity is um, if they do a um, fried lamb's brains mm-hmm. there, which are crumbed. And, you know, which, you know, most people are probably shuddering back in horror that I'm talking lamb's brains while they're eating their cornflakes. But, um, but they're, they're absolutely beautiful. Like, they're crumbed, they're fried, um, they're served with sort of parsley and capers and things like that. And it's kind of like, and they're, they're, it's like a really, it's sort of like a cloud-like texture, actually really subtle flavour to them, those sort of things. So, you know, the French, it's like, you know, you've, you're doing, if, you, if you're eating rabbit, you know, some kind of rabbit ragu, you're going to have a lot of the offal is going to be in there as well. So you're kind of eating lots of, lots of things that you may, not generally having your diet. Did you tuck into any? Was it andouillette? I had some. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. It was great. The, I think the, the most the, the the most staggering thing that I ate when I was over there was in a very high end restaurant at Le Bristol, which is a very high end restaurant in Paris, and we were eating in the in the restaurant there, and we had a whole breast chicken that was poached inside a pig's bladder. Get out. So it was like it came to the table like a balloon. Like mm. a pig's bladder was like blown up with the chicken and so you can't see the chicken. So the chicken's inside this bladder and they have this like fantastic silver stand with chicken feet on it. So it's like a balloon sitting on silver chicken feet and then they break open the bladder at the table <sighs> and carve the chicken at the table and there's like people with trays and they're sort of it's all it was like, you know, you know, full on French you know, restaurant drama. You know, it was like, it was absolutely fantastic. It was sort of like, you know, I, could, I would never do it again. Like the chicken was pretty great, but mm. it was sort of like, the, it was kind of gross as well with the bladder sort of deflating all around it. It was like, you know, like so, uh, you know, but it was a good chicken. Well, thank you for sharing just some of your memories. Yeah, no worries. <laughs> uh, now, and obviously lots of French restaurants. Well, it would be good to cover this topic in the future as well. Uh, yeah. Mm. Because yeah, I'm very interested in all the French scene popping up, and yeah, it's and I do I do love the whole French, you know, kind of like I do. You can sort of feel like it's like quite uptight, and there's so many rules, mm. and you're not allowed to do this and everything. But there's actually sort of a beauty and a humour yeah. in it as well that I really really appreciated this time. That was sort of like I did love the sort of boundaries that they put on themselves because it's sort of like it, it encourages creativity in some ways. It doesn't, and rather than stifling it, like you've, you've got these parameters, and then you, how can I work within those? And so some of the stuff that we ate was like, you know, one of the great things I ate was this lentil dish. Like, you know, and I'm, I'm, I don't mind lentils, but I'm not sort of racing mm. towards them. But this lentil dish I would go back to this restaurant just for that because it was like it was light the lentils were beautifully cooked it was um there was sort of like vinegary lemony kind of lightness to them that was sort of like that was astounding and it's sort of like I it it was probably quite a traditional dish but it was sort of like I'd never tasted lentils like it so I love the fact that they're sort of they work within parameters and sort of elevate 
simple things into into amazing things. Yeah, extraordinary. Well, welcome home. Uh, thanks, Michael Harvey. Merci. No worries. <laughs> Independent Melbourne Radio 3 Triple R. It's time for the tech segment that will change your life, and it's Tolkas here. Morning, Vanessa. Good morning, Breakfasters. How are we? Yeah, well. really well, and super interested in this retrospective. Yeah, look, we're talking about BuzzFeed news today, and uh, when I brought this up, there were a bunch of people going, BuzzFeed hasn't closed, has it? I'm like, no, no, BuzzFeed, you know, as a whole entity, BuzzFeed Inc. is still around. But BuzzFeed News was a separate little side uh, project that ran from 2012 and has just wound up in the last month. So I thought it was time to reflect on it on the platform that was potentially going to revolutionise and completely change the way everybody received news. And uh, it's it's a really interesting story, I think. Uh, founder Jonah Peretti is, is someone who I'll mention a little bit because they have been with it the whole way through. And that's quite unusual too for someone to have, you know, shepherded an entity like this through so many different stages of growth. Um, and someone else I'll mention is Ben Smith who got brought in to run news and came from Politico, you know, had been blogging through um, US presidential elections and what have you and was very interested in the new ways of reporting news and they went, look, you're young and keen, we're going to pluck you up and we're going to give you this news thing to to run. So BuzzFeed had already been around and it was already famous for listicles, you know, um, 10 stupid ways you can do this and that you'll want to share it with your friends because it's pretty funny. And was it sort of a parallel story in that case with some social media channels that were opening up at the time? Definitely, definitely. You know, Gorka was around and um, we didn't yet have Facebook venturing into news and that sort of happens during their journey. Snapchat wasn't around yet, TikTok wasn't around yet, but um, you had, uh, yeah, a bunch of people trying to figure out how is news going to cross over with social media? Because they designed it specifically for social media when that... Absolutely. Yeah. This is this is designed to fit in your palm, mm-hmm. be readable on your mobile phone. And we have to remember that even though lots of news outlets had gone online already, you know, they hadn't really done all that work in making things um, really suit that way of digesting the news. And they certainly hadn't made them easy to share and disseminate and talk about. Um, so that idea of going viral, I, I really think BuzzFeed owns a lot of that feeling. Um, and it, you know, became a bit of the aim. So from from a um, just to separate in our minds, BuzzFeed, you're thinking quiz, uh, quizzes and listicles and short videos, and it, there was a lot of user-generated content there, which meant that it became hyper-local. You would have Australians talking about, is it, is it a potato cake or a potato scallop? You know what I mean? They could have very local things. But the news was a separate stream. It was meant to be, you know, it was ambitious. It's like, we want hard-hitting news stories. Um, we want to be grounded in investigative reporting. And the way they attracted journalists to them was really by saying, we're going to give you money and we want you to go out there and be intrepid reporters. And media companies had been suffering for years, ripping the guts out of their, you know, uh, news and current affairs sort of streams. And so it was a huge magnet. But to a certain type of person, this company at the time was filled with 20-somethings, you know, a few more senior people at the top and what have you. But you've got to think about what an exciting culture that must have been. They put on free lunches. You know, they started out with offices in New York. They soon had one in London. We had one in Sydney for a while. You know, there were ones around the world. They had France and Germany and a bunch of places um, at their height. Uh, But it's a really interesting story about how quickly did they rise and then when did it start going wrong. 
So fans of the organisation would say, look, they were figuring out how to swim in those currents of the internet and um, and they really subsidised the news division with all of this other fun stuff and so they tried to do something good with it and that's, you know, some of the nicest things you could probably say about them. But critics were saying, look, this embodied the worst elements of the internet. It was traffic-focused media and it was money-grubbing and it was, you know, clicks above all else. You know, there were weekly meetings in the New York office um, analysing what went well this week and why. How can we repeat that sort of success? What are, What is this leaning into? And you've got to think if those are your metrics you'd be concerned with what we know now about um, really emotive topics, hate-filled topics, that sort of thing, um, and how that drives clicks, like drives engagement. But all of this was new to us. We didn't know how this was going to work. So it is fascinating. They did have some amazing successes. Over their life, they won a ton of awards. So they've got a Pulitzer. They won a George Polk Award, which I haven't heard of, but that's got to mean something to journalists somewhere. Sydney Award, National Magazine Awards, Press Foundation Awards, um, and some uh, Best News Website Awards too, which would have been a real kick in the teeth to you know standard, um, established, centuries-old news institutions. So I do think it's fascinating. But, you know, they start in 2013. They've got quizzes like, which ousted Arab Spring ruler are you? <laughs> you know, but they've also got that pushing right alongside their news reporting and their budgets are something that are legend. So people come in, they go, what's my budget? And people say, better not ask because they might give you one. Just <laughs> um, just pitch the prices of what you're going to do. So as well as the free lunches, you know, they were taking, you hear stories about $150 a head, uh, sorry, £150 head lunches to schmooze sources and try and get people to, to work with you. Um, people just open checks to fly around chasing down leads, um, and that's kind of interesting. But some of the stories that they got out of this were really hard-hitting stories on um, legal aid in the UK and its failures and how that was, you know, flowing through the justice system. And they won awards for that sort of reporting. Um, in uh, 2014, they segment um, news and life more explicitly uh, because they move all the life stuff under the guy who's already running the video channel. And that's when you can start seeing them already grasping that video is going to be huge. They were really early to pick that up. And then they've pushed all the fun sort of listicle sort of stuff over that way. And you go, okay, this is a real amazing moment in internet dissemination of content. But meanwhile, news is still being run by Ben Smith. Um, and he's sort of, you know, he's, he's pushing this go out and get it culture. The fall really begins... Um, when it's about 2015, 2016, they're starting to have to cut journalists for the first time, so they're not just in crazy periods of growth. And uh, their investigative reporting is still doing well. In Australia, the impact is Media Watch does this story um, on how, at this point, BuzzFeed has 20 investigative journalists and Media Watch are talking about the perfect storm facing digital news. They're saying, look, if you've got this click model and we've now got advertising online, so, you know, that's that's tied to the click model, then you've got the rise of these social media companies. What is this going to mean if you can't get your news onto a platform where the clicks are happening? So increasingly people are starting to get their news via the social media rather than going straight to the source news site, which is a huge problem for all the media publishers. Um, 
and they talked to five to ten years ago, this is in 2016, if you wanted to buy digital advertising in Australia, you went to one of five places. It was nine. It was Fairfax. It was News Limited, Yahoo, Seven or Telstra. And that was 80% of the ad market. And this just completely gets disrupted at this point. Um, so everyone's freaking out in Australia. Mm. I mean, buzzfeedification of the entire news. It really... It still lingers, doesn't it, it? It does. You know, when we talk about clickbait headlines, I mean, people are wise to it now. And you see people post a news story on Instagram, for example, and there'll be those lovely citizens saying, don't bother to click through. This is what the article's actually about. If you're interested, <laughs> now you can read it if you want. And everyone's like, thank you for your service. <laughs> yes. You know, so people have worked out their ways of dealing with it. But it's fascinating. So at that time, 2016, more than 12 million Australians are on Facebook every day and they're logging in about six times a day. It's huge. By 2017, BuzzFeed's revenue growth is starting to slow as a whole and TikTok launches internationally. And you forget that it's as long ago as that, mm. like 2017, but, you know, the claws were starting to get in and um, it was already huge in China and it, it just goes off. Um, at the same time, you know, while we've seen accusations of uh, the dumbing down of news, a 2017 study in the Journalism Journal compared news articles by BuzzFeed and the New York Times and it finds, you know, they use the same sort of rigour, the reverse pyramid layout um, same sort of rigour in sources in the news channel. Um, opinions were absent from the majority of articles, the journalist opinions. Um, they had similar focus on government and politics. However, BuzzFeed News devoted way more space to social issues. So they covered protests and LGBT issues, and I say that intentionally because it wasn't so much the, the, the TIQA sort of part of that. Um, and they more frequently quoted ordinary people and less frequently covered crime and terrorism. So it's interesting to think about how that was appealing to their younger demographic audience. Uh, 2018, they're still winning awards, but TikTok becomes the most downloaded app in the US by October that year. Um, they won, you know, website of the year, the news division. Um, it's a bunch of press awards. In 2019, you know, things are still going on, but there's, they lay off 15% of their staff. And, you know, writing's on the wall. Budgets have been slashed. They have budgets now. You know, things have... Riggers come in. They're no longer 20-somethings necessarily. You know, they're all getting a bit older and more experienced. They're losing some of their talent. Um, in 2021, that's when they actually win their Pulitzer for international reporting um, for their cover of internment camps in China of Uyghur refugees, well, people who become refugees. Um, they also listed on the stock exchange. You'd think that's... In 2021? Yeah. In hindsight, you know, massive mistake. Should have gone earlier, if at all. Um, and Did they, that catalyse a yeah. failure? Yeah, they never do that well. You know, the share price collapses and then it's, you know, the impression of even being successful has vanished. And, yeah. and But other news sites are suffering similarly. So Vox and Vice are all, you know, struggling with the same sort of thing. And really, you look back at this and you go, it was the great 2010s experiment. Was this going to be the way we'd always stick to news or not? Uh, so that's, that's sort of where I want to leave you. I mean, conclusions, um, people want information that's newsworthy and accurate, but are they willing to pay for it? And are they, you know, the brands that have really survived this time have already had really loyal followings. I think maybe HuffPost is a slight exception to that, which Buzz Inc also owns and which they're continuing to run. So, you know, they've thought differently about what they want to invest in.
But if you do want to know more about this, there's some crazy stories about celebrities visiting and junkets and, you know, the sort of ridiculousness that you want and people having live shots on air while they're, you know, tweeting out an election coverage. Um, And you can read that all on the BuzzFeed News site where um, they've gone and spoken to a bunch of old staffers and just done, you know, an oral history of of BuzzFeed News. How iconic to establish a way of doing news to the extent where Clickhole, which is, I think, one of the funniest websites. Here's a headline. Five times in Grandpa's autopsy report where the coroner dunked on him. <laughs> <laughs> like, that you inspire a genre that a outlasts OG. Yeah. Exactly, a whole style of writing. Yeah, and, and some would say, you know, some of the TikTok formats that we see now really owe everything to BuzzFeed News. Mm. Mm. Yeah. R.I.P.? R.I.P. There <laughs> you go. Holker, thanks very much. Triple R on FM, digital, online, via the app. Cerise Howard is a seasoned film festival professional, long-time Triple R broadcaster, whose voice you've heard expanding on cinema for Primal Screen, Plato's Cave and Smart Arts, as co-curator of Cinematheque, the weekly celebration of hard-to-find movies hosted at Acme, <laughs> and having co-founded and directed the Czech and Slovak Film Festival, Cerise has newly been announced as program director of the Melbourne Queer, Queer Film Festival. And to tell us about her artistic vision, only five minutes after scoring the gig, the commentator <laughs> and cinema academic joins us now. Cerise, welcome back to Breakfast. Oh, thank you, Daniel. <laughs> that was quite quite breathless and, and flattering, to be honest. It's um, all true, of course. No, no, it's not. It's all <laughs> absolute fiction. I don't recognise me in any of what you just said. Um, can we do a bit of a Cerise Howard cinema retrospective? When did the magic hit for you and never let go for cinema? Oh, I was a, a student, um, early, mid-90s, La Trobe University, um, had a, a great cinema faculty back in the day, and um, that, that helped. Um, I, I was already a little interested, but I wasn't fanatical yet, but the, the likes of Eat Carpet, if you remember Saturday nights in the 90s on SBS. It was weird, wasn't it? Wasn't it wonderful? Yeah. Um, it's like kind yeah. of waking up and watching Rage and just having your mind expanded. It was, it, yeah, it, it was consciousness raising, <laughs> let's say, and um, that helped too. Um, just getting involved. Uh, I, I started attending the Cinematheque recently. That's a great way to get an education in screen literacy. Um, I got involved with a, a local journal, Senses of Cinema, an online journal in the earliest days of online journal publishing, as began in 1999, still going strong. And now I write for it, but I administered its website for about 10 years and just absorbed all the information that we published from quite an astonishing array of writers from around the globe as it poured in and kept pouring in. Uh, lots of passion projects uh, like that, coming on, doing volunteer radio for years and years and years and still going to keep... Yeah, we've been uh, so lucky. Uh, well, I've been very lucky. All of these have been... You know, to be granted all these platforms over years and years um, is it's, it's wonderful. It's the generosity of your positions and the projects that you've taken on is that it is also platforming the work of other artists and so it's community building and it's sort of championing the creative work of others and I suppose directorship of a film festival is a unique opportunity to sort of survey the scene and bring together all of these different voices. Can you tell us a little bit about yeah, what, what's involved? What's involved? Well, it's... Uh there's a there's an, a tremendous amount that's involved and and some of it uh, is quite unpredictable um typically you might have some ideas ahead of time about themes uh there there are always things going on in the wider world that need speaking to 
and sometimes it's very in the moment. Suddenly you have to uh, suddenly spy, um, move, maneuver quickly to to respond to something breaking at the the moment that might come in. Let's say rather. Um, at an inconvenient time, even in the cycle of planning, like right now, we really need to speak to the lunacy out there that some some very uh, adult folk um, who are you know, perpetrating terrible things mm-hmm. against transgender, diverse, non-binary drag performers. I mean, there's there's, there's madness out there in the world that needs uh, addressing. So you need to run some counter narratives sometimes. So a, a festival like say queer film festival has to be resistant to some things whilst also being very joyous and positive and there's there's the um that's the the difficult line to tread is mm. to is to be activistic but also to to bring the love and bring bring the joy and and just set some records right absolutely mm. how is cinema as a medium uh how what it's its quality at responding to the world do you think it can yeah, it, it sometimes it depends uh, because film production is on all manner of um, orders of magnitude and scale, and some of it can be very um, nimble and rapid response. And you know, sometimes it's the micro budget works that can speak to evolving, urgent situations um, with the greatest alacrity. Uh, bigger budget productions tend to reflect trends in the wider world a year or two after things have, have really gained a footing. So there's a real mixture, but I, I, I'm, I'm a little loath also to speak in too broad generalizations because it's a big old world out there and you know, what's happening here isn't what's happening elsewhere necessarily. And uh, look, people have to make their Art, their screen media, or other other art forms under any number of variety, immense variety of different conditions, uh, life conditions, lived experiences. So, uh, yeah, the duty I feel I have is to bring as much and diverse an array of that as possible to Melbourne audiences, and by extension to uh, others who might come to Melbourne or be able to access our mm. offerings. Um, in some other fashion. What are you going to have to give up? Do you have to give up anything? Will you watch the same amount of movies mm. but have to sacrifice a genre or anything like that or will you just watch more movies? Uh, I will watch more. Um, the bar was already set reasonably high there, but uh, um, I, I will have to, to hone my focus a little, but that's oh, queer cinema is... is it's no one thing. Mm. Uh, queerness lurks where you least expect <laughs> it sometimes. So um, there, there's a, a huge output these days. I think if you looked at the festival's earlier days, uh, it wasn't just a function of having less money to play with and being a, a, um, a smaller event that those programs were smaller. It's just that there is actually a, a, a there are greater riches out there, and the, and the digital revolution has made it easier for people to pick up cameras put together a small crew, get out on the streets, make a movie. <laughs> so we are about six months out from mm. the Queer Film Festival. Yeah. So what kind of things would you be thinking about at this kind of time out? Or, Well, I'm, I'm already thinking that uh, you know, some key messaging this year needs to um, – and I, I don't want to, to make this sound like a negative thing, but there are there are myths that need debunking that are being uh, mm-hmm. propagated at the moment by right wing elements. So that needs some countering. And I, I there are some myths out there that somehow 
let's say, gender fluidity as one example, is a new idea or that any sort of uh, existence outside of binary modes of being is kind of new. And it just isn't. Mm. It's been around forever. And so many First Nations cultures attest to that. And uh, so I'm, I'm super keen in particular this year to give a bit more of a historical lens to the program and have uh, at least a key part of this program representing that diversity and that historicity. Um, so I'm looking at films, not just the latest, most revolutionary forward-thinking cinema, but also, well, let's say the some of the oldest most forward-thinking cinema uh, that speaks to any number of different experiences, different peoples at different times, and uh, just, just presents a spectrum of amazing inspiring queer lived experience as a curator do you ever in your past or to the future program anything that you don't necessarily like but you know people do and yeah right yep yep that that goes with the territory um and and it always should uh i mean i certainly shouldn't be the sole arbiter of um taste in an operation like this and i've always been very um uh community-minded and collaborationist, um, collaborative, I think is a better term, <laughs> uh, in any programming I've done before. I'll have a, a panel. I'll have um, others feeding into that. Um, I've got to assemble a little panel quite uh, urgently. Folks out there in <laughs> listener land, get in touch. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I need a, a, a panel that re- represents the diversity of the community that we're catering to. I need the youth and I need the elders uh, and I need sort of middle groundy folk like me who are, um, yeah, youngish but also oldish. <laughs> what, uh, because as you say, panels are a feature of the Melbourne Queer Film Festival. What goes into a panel? I know you've just touched on it, but how valuable are they supplementing the cinema offerings? Oh, you're talking about panels, the public-facing sort of side yeah, of a panel? Yeah. Uh, well, I think super important because it, it's one thing to put something on the big screen, but it's a whole other thing to then uh, provide an opportunity for a discussion around it, uh, whether that happens in the foyers or at an after-party or, or if it happens within the cinema space still immediately afterwards while people are still in that headspace of having been in the film and then you have an opportunity to, let's say, meet some of the folks involved with it or have a panel of people who can speak to what we've all just experienced. I mean, it's super important. Uh, it's, it enriches the the uh, festival experience enormously in my reckoning. So um, there'll be plenty of that, yeah. Yeah. Does it ever get charged and heated in a panel? Because cinema can inspire emotions and it's sure. here in a dark room. Um, you do and don't hope that it does. Mm. Um, yes, I mean, it can. Um, I mean, you, you really, when assembling a panel, want everyone to be civil to one another, but you do also seek some differences of opinion. It's not a particularly scintillating experience to witness a panel where someone says something and it's quite profound and, mm. and then the person next to them says, yeah, I agree. Yeah. And then the person next to them says, oh, yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, mm. it's, it's the drama. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I was just going to say, on a personal note, is there something that you're particularly like excited about or looking forward to in this role and, and curating this festival? Uh all of it. Yeah. Um, it's it's hard to get too granular just at the moment because yeah, this is sure. day 
two in a bit. <laughs> and, Come on, um, work it yeah, out. Yeah, yeah. So I'm not all across what's going to be in this year's festival yet. I have some notions, but I've got a lot of viewing to do yep. and a lot of thinking and a lot of assembling of program and panels and... Um, so, uh, but I'm, I'm definitely very excited about not just this being my, my first opportunity to you know, somehow incorporate my own peculiar sensibility on a queer film festival program locally, but just um, the opportunity to bring a whole lot of people together and, um, and for them to have a really rich, immersive time, thought-provoking, uh, inspiring, hope people feel seen, and on when they see films where they don't see themselves reflected or you know there's some complexity and difficult nuance to representation yeah, that I get the balance right that there are other films that just present the breadth of our experiences mm. on planet Earth as queer people and perhaps beyond. <laughs> yeah, well, the festival's in terrific hands. Congratulations on the opportunity. Good luck with all the viewing. Thanks so much. Uh, we've been speaking with Cerise Howard, Program Director of the Melbourne Queer Film Festival. Head to mqff.com.au. Uh, Obviously, nothing is up there right now. In, oh, there's, well, there's lots up yeah. there. Yeah. But give yeah. Cerise a chance. It's <laughs> yeah. just new. Uh, and new. it'll hit in November. Cerise, thanks very much. Thanks so much. Melbourne's own Triple R. We're talking pet blood donation for fetch creatures this week, drawing on the knowledge of Werribee Vet Hospitals, Dr Liam Donaldson. Liam, welcome to Breakfasters. Thank you so much for having me here. It's, it's exciting. It, it is, well, it's exciting for us because you'd ordinarily be well and truly at work at this hour. Yeah, I was going to say it was a bit of, uh, bit of a late start for me this morning, which is always nice. So. <laughs> That's not typically what our guests say. <laughs> so now you work at a 24-hour hospital. Yeah, so we're, um, we're 24 hours at the University of Melbourne, um, which is very exciting. So um, we're at a point where come mid-June we'll be opening up the doors 24-7 for our clients, whereas at the moment we're providing 24-hour care for current inpatients. Okay. Now, you're here because there's a national shortage of blood. Is that right? Yeah. So... um, it's very interesting sort of in um, veterinary medicine in the fact that uh, there's not too many canine or feline blood banks around. So uh, we're at a point now uh, in um, our clinic where we're actually having to run our own blood donor program. Okay. Now, uh, what sort of obstacles are there to getting the blood that you so need for your work? Yeah, it's uh, there's a couple. So the first of all is just getting the word out there and just letting um, the people of Melbourne know that if they have a nice, happy, healthy dog or cat, um, you know, they're open to have a chat with us in terms of, um, you know, having their pet act as a blood donor. Um, the other issue that we sometimes sort of run into is just making sure that the um, that the lovely owners that come to us, making sure that pets meet the certain requirements um, for them to be a blood donor. So there are some stringent requirements just based on size of their pet. Uh, we just want to make sure it's nice and safe for the pet that is giving the blood donation as well as the one receiving. Mm. Are there any characteristics of animal blood that differs from human blood donation? It's very similar. So um, we We have blood types in dogs and cats. Um, The exciting thing, though, is that uh, in certain circumstances when we're short on uh, cat blood, we can actually give dog blood to cats. Don't tell them. I know. (laughs) Exactly right. So, uh, yeah, that's that's an interesting difference between, um, you know, dogs and cats and humans. 
Yeah. A big feature of donating blood as a human is the snacks. Do you yeah. provide oh, snacks for the pets? So many <laughs> snacks, so much love. So I'll, the majority of our um, patients that come in that are blood donors actually enjoy coming into the clinic. So it's a couple of hours of love, attention, snacks. Um, you know, it's a very positive experience. Uh and they actually look forward to giving their blood donation every three months. Oh, three wow. months? Yeah, yeah. So at the moment, um, that's our limit. So every three months is the maximum that we'll have a pet give a blood donation. Um, no more than that. Uh, we're hoping to get enough blood donors, though, so we can uh, just have to call on our blood donors more uh, sporadically than that, hopefully once a year. And as you mentioned, obviously there's some regular sort of donors. And for people that are curious about it but haven't actually become involved, what kind of questions do you get from, from the pet owners typically? Uh, typically, where does the blood go? Um, you know, uh, clients want to know that, uh, that the blood that uh, their pet's donating is going to a pet that has a good prognosis. Um, and that's one of our primary um, purposes as well, as well as that the majority say over 90% of the blood that we give to um, canine, uh, to dogs and cats that come into the clinic, those pets go home. They have a very good prognosis and that blood donation is literally saving lives. And the other thing as well as that clients like to know is that every blood no- donation that they give that has the potential to save three lives because we're actually able to separate the blood down into its components. Amazing. What, what's your experience? Have you looked into dialysis? Yeah, yeah. So um, hemodialysis is just taking off in the United States. Um, I suspect within the next two to three years we'll have the capacity to do dialysis in clinic, Mm -hmm. um, in our clinic, which is very, very exciting. So I'm sort of doing a course through UC Davis at the moment. Um, And there's such demand at the moment from clients to provide top quality care for their pets, um, which is exciting that we can do absolutely everything that we're doing in the human field in the veterinary field as well so dialysis mechanical ventilation blood transfusions all of that Mm. is it cute uh, withdrawing blood from a generous animal yeah like you know the by far like the clients that we get uh, the pets that we get are generally happy healthy pets that um, are absolutely adorable their clients are the loveliest clients so it's a very positive experience Have you had any experiences where you've had someone who has maybe been hesitant to give blood and you've kind of gone on that process with them? No, yeah. So it's very much like we – it's a very much open book and open discussion with the owner. You know, we we open up that dialogue. We let them know what's involved. um, And – they're welcome to be there at the time of blood donation as well. Mm -hmm. We encourage that. Yeah. And – with our dogs and with our cats, we do absolutely everything to avoid any sedation. They literally lay there, get lots of love, get liver treats, and we it's no worse than um, than receiving a vaccination, basically. Yeah, sure. What, what percentage of pet owners do you think know the blood type of their pet? I would say less than 1%. Yeah, wow. <laughs> <laughs> and do you want that to increase? Yeah, I think it's important. Like, I think the more community involvement we can get in our blood um, donor program the better. Um, we often have, it's sort of progressed to the point now where um, we're so short on blood donors that if a patient uh, presents to us, we'll often call on the owner if they have any pets that are open for donation. And it makes it so much easier if they actually know the blood type of their pet as well. 
Yeah. And where can you do it? Is it all over Victoria? Yeah, so um, at the moment we have multiple emergency hospitals that are calling out for blood donors. So we have a list on greencrossvets.com.au. Um, so the animal emergency centres all across Melbourne, um, Green Cross Veterinary Hospital at the University of Melbourne, uh, CARE, so the Centre for Animal Referral and Emergency. Um, we're all at a point now where we're sort of open to accepting blood donors, which would be amazing. Mm. And you're at the coalface of, I suppose, name trends in names what are you picking up out there oh yeah <laughs> oh charlie is 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 the primary one my my own cavoodle is charlie i have to admit uh, uh charlie bella um lucky is a very common uh, one ah well. and what's yeah. the word on chow chows oh chow chows <laughs> chow chows can have a million names okay yeah. <laughs> but as a rule are they, are they are you well behaved t- dogs yeah you're yeah. singing up yeah. of course yeah I, I think chow chows are definitely popular especially being imported into Australia okay um, so I had the um, the honour of going out to the quarantine facility at Mickleham last week and it was amazing to see how many chow chows were being imported from overseas oh, into Australia wow. what's, what's that facility looking like it's absolutely amazing. So the Australian government have done a great job. Um, so it's a, f- I think it's a four hundred million dollar facility out at, out at Mickleham, top top notch. Um, very focused on uh, patient welfare and patient care, which is great. So it was, we thought it was going to be full of people isolating for COVID, but it's full of chow chows. <laughs> Pretty much full of chow chows and, and, uh, and, and Charlie's. And Tonkinese cats. So. Yeah. <laughs> and what about uh, the fur? Does it get in the way with the syringe? Yeah, so um, typically we do a little bit of a clip. It's not a wide clip, um, just enough to sterilise the site. And what you know how nurses can sometimes tell a human patient, oh, you got a hard to find vein or whatever. No, our nurses are so experienced. I would trust them any day taking my own blood. All right. <laughs> well, for more information on how to donate blood, head to would you suggest greencrossvets.com.au? Yeah, and there's a whole list on um, what our requirements are for donation and who to reach out to to organise a chat. All right, and you're off to work now to save lives? I'm off to work now. Okay. Exciting. Dr. Liam Donaldson, thanks very much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Triple R. It's our time to check in with Fee Wright, the reader with the last word in books on breakfasts. <laughs> Top of the morning. Top of the morning to you. I need a, I need a hat to doff. <laughs> exactly. uh, good morning, good morning. So um, I'm here today to review a novel and I'm a little bit anxious about how to phrase it because a lot of reviews discuss something that happens very early on in the book, but I consider that event to be a spoiler. Mm. I went into this book totally unawares and was incapable of putting it down. So I want to create that sensation for listeners, if that's okay. So can I be a little bit more vague Please. than yes. usual? I mean, I'm already, I'm always vague, but can I be extra vague? Real leaning and muddy out waters. <laughs> is that kind of also a little bit appropriate because this is quite a mysterious novel by its nature? Yes, it is, it is, quite, it is quite mysterious. I think it merges the idea of... Um, genre fiction like a thriller and also literary fiction in this beautiful way but um we're talking about the anniversary by stephanie bishop it is out via hachette um so we meet jb blackwood she's a novelist not quite 40 she's been with her partner for about 14 oh well 14 years not about 14, because that is the anniversary in question in the title of the book, The 14 Years. 
She met Patrick, her husband, when he was her uni lecturer. They began an affair while she was his student. And in this way, the book seems to be traveling that very campus life, campus novel kind of familiar thing. Um, she didn't know at first. She didn't know at first that he was a new father, and his partner was at home with the baby. And we've got the older, wiser man, the younger ingenue. Gross. All right, <laughs> but then it um it really shifts gears because we get to see what happens when that flame becomes a bit tepid. Um, you know, they get older, her analysis, and you get it's all told from her internal perspective. So you get to see her analysis of their relationship and its pitfalls. And a huge focus of this novel is on their work. So he's a director. She met him at, uni, I think, it, I think it was Melbourne Uni that she's, it's kind of a bit vague, but it feels like Melbourne Uni film studies, you know, that kind of area. He's a director, um, and he has this huge body of work and this massive amount of respect. And she is an author and her writing is slowly growing, but it's considered lesser art than his. And also there's this kind of um, implication that she would be nothing without his work at all. Um, and the creative processes, and that's and not that's not from her. That's from society. That the criticism that she faces is like, oh, without him, without Patrick, you're nothing, kind of stuff. Um, the creative process is really all encompassing for both of them, and it's this really powerful spell. Um, so he's already famous when they meet. Well, like you know, like D grade Melbourne <laughs> art director famous. You know, you know, you know what I mean. But then he gradually becomes like super famous. Um, and she discuss. she loves the creative process. That is like the thing that keeps her there and the thing that drives their relationship. So, um, when we meet her, she's spending a lot of time reflecting back on her youth, you know, the last 14 years of their relationship, um, the choice not to have children because he, um, the young child or the, the baby is now a, a young teenager person. Um, you know, so she's a stepmom, but she doesn't want to have children because she just doesn't want anything to detract from the time with the work. And um, so when we meet her, she's on the cusp of these two things, her anniversary, but then also winning this huge literary prize in New York. And a lot of the passion has died from both of these types of collaboration, both work and her personal life. And she's trying to revive both of them with a cruise. So she doesn't tell Patrick before the cruise that the cruise will end in New York or well, yeah, it kind of ends near New York where she'll win the prize. So he doesn't know that she's winning the prize and she's going to make it this big surprise. And it's this whole thing. And they're on the cruise together. And they're on the cruise together. So I don't know. I don't know any woman in her mid thirties that's like, you know what, a cruise. Is. <laughs> it's like, is she seventy? No, she just loves buffets. She just. I mean, look. Are they let's, let's not let's not judge the buffet fans. <laughs> this is a safe space. Can I just confirm the setting of the cruise is with like masses of other people, or is it yep. more of an intimate? Okay. Well, it, it is still. I mean, I mean, all cruise like because. I mean, maybe I was I was anti cruise before the princess diamond ruby whatever. Ruby princess, yeah. That, thank you. Yes, I got it back to front somehow. Um, I was I was anti cruise before then, so maybe this is coloring my review. But it thought, it did sound nice. It was like around Alaska and stuff. So I don't know. It sounded kind of 
the 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 bougie lefty cruise option if possible mm-hmm. you know still a buffet like <laughs> let's not go nuts but anyway um so but there's an event that happens on this cruise that I don't want to say because I think it's a huge spoiler because I didn't know it was happening mm-hmm. and I own a pre-release edition of the book and so I don't have a blurb on the back so I don't actually know what the blurb says mm. um but I would recommend not reading the blurb in case you would and don't read any reviews mm-hmm. because this event really surprised me um and it changes everything how her literary prize will be viewed like how the how society will perceive it how society perceives their relationship and also their collaboration and going in blind not knowing was amazing um my partner said that i read this book loudly like it was like a 19 well actually I feel like I was like one of someone watching like a 1930s melodrama because apparently I kept gasping and being like, oh, no, you know. Um, and he was like, can you just read quietly, please? Just read in your head. Anyway, um, so I was just like fully engrossed as this thing happened. And I trusted JB incredibly as a, um, as a narrator. She was honest. She shared so many um, intimate and unflinching and often terrible details about their relationship and, like, herself. Like, she was not painting herself as, like, this perfect person, you know. And I really trusted her throughout the book. Um, However, sometimes she confuses a detail or seems unsure or generally a bit lost in the wake of this event that you start to become concerned for her. And this builds in this, um, this, like, imperceptible way until the end of the novel and this is the pure brilliance of Bishop because I had no idea where this was going and there was a million twists and turns as Blackwood recalls and remembers the past with Patrick. Um, and in my mind, I was almost like imagining, and um, please please don't, don't sue me, I was imagining a young Helen Garner being awarded the prize. So I really trusted her wit and her intellect and her perspective and I don't know Helen Garner personally. But it was like, just I have nothing to base this on. But it was like that was who I was seeing in my head, like a someone of that like caliber, mm-hmm. you know, or like um, like a Deborah Levy, like a, a woman of that that's been writing for years and years and years and has really like built her craft and is um, like reflecting on her youth. And uh, that was just who I was imagining in the time. So it was. Helen Garner-esque, not Helen Garner. Don't see me. Um, but I just really saw Blackwood as this this real person, yeah? Like she was she was there, she was vivid, and she was an incredible, incredible character. And I haven't read anything else by Bush, Bishop, but I really need to. Um, the story was so well-structured and the characters were so realistic. Um, I read a review in which someone said they were drowning in detail Um but I couldn't get enough of that detail. And I think that's where it mixes. And that's why I feel like if someone went in wanting a literary fiction, they'd be like, "Mm, too much drama for me. And if you went in wanting like a thriller or um, a genre fiction, you'd be like, so much navel gazing. Oh my God, just get on with it. So it's kind of like, if you go in with expecting one or the other, you might be a bit disappointed. But if you go in with 
zero expectations about what genre you'll be receiving, I think you might enjoy it more. Mm. Is it as tense as your... I felt tense. I had to... I I had a late night finishing it because I could not... I I was like, how does this end? Like, I needed to know. (laughs) So, and I just just had no idea how I was going to wrap up. I was like, there's so many bits in the air. Yeah, it was... There was a lot going on. Um, and I'm I'm sorry I've been so vague, but no, it's know, so intriguing. It's exactly, I cannot <laughs> wait to read it. Yeah, I can't lend it to you because I want to reread it to like, of course, go through. Uh, often this happens off air. I'll be like, take it, take it, borrow the book. Um, but I want to reread it to like see what hints I've missed in the first read. Oh, lo- oh wow! Uh, it's the anniversary uh, by Stephanie Bishop. Is it? How new is this book? Uh, I think it was Aprily. Yeah, um, right. Fresh. And um, lots of buffet details. <laughs> no, I think I think that was my my focus. I also I also went away to a conference on the weekend, which had a breakfast buffet. So I'm a bit buffet. <laughs> okay, you're a little buffet, buffet on focused. the mind. Yeah. Uh, the anniversary. Stephanie Bishop, new novel. Fee right. Thanks as always. Thank you. Triple R. Ah. Yesterday I was talking about how I dipped my toes back into a bit of watercolours and doing a bit of drawing, which like, was fun. More like a triumphant return than dipping your toes in. Oh, like a... thank you. Very kind, very kind. I was quite happy with the results. A yeah, can't stress enough. I really did find this Draw Any Animal website really helpful. I don't know how, but then for some reason from drawing my mind has has – gone to reflecting on colouring competitions. I think it was maybe drawing the animal. I was always, yeah, it was just a prominent memory of watching Totally Wild and always kind of this sense of outrage I had <laughs> as a teenager to probably not the tar- no longer the target demographic. And, yeah, I did as a teenager set about to win a prize through Totally Wild. I would have been older than I imagine a lot of the other entrance at that point and yeah it's just got me thinking about winning like stuff that you won as a kid the glory chasing the glory of a coloring comp because I was talking about it with my sister and normally the coloring competition you there was no prize you were just displayed in like the bakery yeah it was the satisfaction of participation and the opportunity to yeah share the work yeah did you either of you ever win anything or have like colouring or drawing. I know of some people displayed. who entered regularly on, I don't know, did Agro's Cartoon Connection yeah, have a competition? Is... And uh, look, I don't know if these shows need an audit. Like, I don't know if it was ever rigged or... Yeah, good, yeah. You know, there's no guarantee that they're not, you know, you slip a fiver into the... Yeah, uh, absolutely. The producer slash judge and mm-hmm. who knows, maybe you're getting on the telly. Oh, look, big, big surprise. It's the producer's niece or nephew. Mm. Yeah, well, I get it. I hear what you say. But is it colouring... Are we just colouring in between the lines? I mean, what's... Yeah, I know. I mean, from what, what, what I've what seen... What are we judging? Yeah, from what I've seen, there's very little judging going on. My memory is nothing's inside the lines in those colouring competitions. But the, the, the criteria, so are we talking colour selection maybe? Yeah. Okay. Expression, you know, is it more like literal kind of approach with or like to life with, yeah, the colour selection or is it more abstract? And and like, I see what you mean. And, and in terms of, yeah, literalness or abstraction, we're kind of also curious as to what it was about the submissions mm. to Totally Wild that would sort of, yeah, create this sense of frustration in, in young Nat. Yeah, I guess it was, you know, what Daniel raised, like 
because it wasn't a colouring competition, but just I think the stand of the artwork, I was, yeah, just thought it was subpar, I guess. And so I saw it as an opportunity to cash in. But at the time, did you also submit your own work? Or was I it did. Just, yeah. Yeah, I submitted a picture of a dinosaur, which I, right, um, I traced. So I guess, is that cheating, would you say, in the, the art competition world, amateur art competition world? Well, yeah, it probably is. Yeah. I mean, obviously we flagged yesterday that dinosaurs are extinct and yeah. Ranger Stacey was more interested in, you know, animals that were alive that she could sure. touch. But I also, the criteria, I thought colouring in was the lines were pre-ascribed for you. Mm. I, I didn't know colouring in transcended a preordained structure or silhouette. Mm. Can we define the terms here? I see what you mean. And so if we're looking at the judging criteria the winner would necessarily have to have all of the colour pigment within those lines. Is that right? Well, I mean, who's providing the lines? Nat, can you explain? Because my association with colouring in, like a Mm. colouring in book, is that someone's drawn an outline of an animal or whatever for you. You're saying that the competition is not just colouring in, you've got to create a holus bolus. Well, yeah, I suppose I'm definitely talking about both. Like, you're correct there. A colouring competition, traditionally, as I've understood it, everyone is given the same image, maybe a variation of three. And, yes, the idea in the name that you would you would colour within the lines, but I would that's rarely the case in what I've witnessed on the walls of hardware stores and bakeries. Mm. So, yeah, I'm not sure who's judging it. If anyone, you know, maybe it is, it's it's um, a bit tokenistic, they're going up on the wall. Yeah, I'm not sure. But they suck you in, don't they? Because it, there are kids all around the country glued waiting for the end of the show. Mm which is when the previous week's winner is announced. Yeah, so, and I think that's where I've confused you, Daniel, I guess, is because I just really had totally wild in my mind because I would watch it um, most afternoons, I guess, and I was just seeing this shocking artwork rolled out every day yeah. and it boiled my blood. But now I quite like the idea of um, participating in these colouring competitions as an adult completely equipped, you know, to colour within the lines. You know, I've got the time. I'm not at school. I'm not at uni. I keep these hours. I can go home and I can produce, I think, a real, I would say, a higher standard than what is being submitted by maybe, you know, the, the 5 to 10 age mm. bracket. Well, maybe, And you, I'll show them up. <laughs> maybe if you're a totally wild art judge, mm. you are savvy in the same way that an English teacher is savvy to when ChatGPT has submitted an essay. Yeah. On the, you can detect tracing. Yeah, you can detect tracing or you can detect that maybe someone is outside of that the appropriate age bracket, maybe. Yeah. The right, Ranger Stacey's right, I was pinging. Yeah. I mean, why is there not more... Well, I would love to see a colouring competition for adults. And I'd want some transparency mm. in the judging panel, mm. how it's being done, what is the criteria, because I think we've identified this as a real issue. And until that happens, I'm not sure what the solution is. I guess, you know, maybe I'm just going to have to put my pictures on the fridge or Maybe I'm bring too them in here. Creatively conservative, but the whole thinking outside the box and mm. colouring between the lines. Yeah. I think it's okay 
you know, colouring outside the lines is, you know, lionized as, you know, thinking creatively. Is that fair to say? Yes. Yes. But I think you should at least learn to colour inside the lines first. You need to know the rules in order to be able to break them. Uh, yeah, I agree. So, yeah, the, there's like a first stage, prove you can colour within the lines, mm. and then maybe there's a final heat where you can maybe exercise some of this more, you know, contemporary flair if there's a message, maybe a political message, that you want to get, you want to infuse your your colouring in comp with. Yeah, maybe, maybe what you could have been, which would have been, or maybe you could do it now, mm. is like Robert Hughes was a famous Australian and internationally recognised art critic who yep. had a way with words and was could be pretty hilariously vicious. Yeah. And maybe you could be like totally wild art critic and you just rip those brats to shreds. Fantastic. I'm loving this. Scrap the adult colouring competition. I curate or run my own colouring competition for kids, but I give them a good dose of reality. Yeah. Triple R. From Zero G Mondays, 1pm on Triple R, we welcome back to Breakfasts. Phil Buff, Meg McHugh. Hello. Good morning, good morning. Uh, so exciting to see you in uh, probably not in your Zero G purview. No, we have <laughs> stepped outside of genre today <laughs> into the world of the friendship rom-com. Uh, so today talking about Book Club, the next chapter. I went along to see this for a bit of a change. Looked light, looked fluffy. Don't know anyone who doesn't like Diane Keaton, so that's a good start. Uh, So Book Club, the next chapter, is the sequel to 2018's film Book Club. And it's about uh, the first film was about four friends whose lives and hearts are ignited when they form a book club to read the book Fifty Shades of Grey. So already that's a pretty good one-line gimmick premise. Um, from my understanding, the film did pretty well. If you are wondering about whether you can see Book Club, the next chapter, without seeing the first one, yes, I can assure you you can. It is not a deep character or plot piece, so you're right to trot along to this. Uh, both films are directed by Bill Holderman. He's produced quite a few sort of smaller projects, but these are his only directing credits. So not to cast aspersions at Mr. Holderman, but I think he knows someone if he was able to pull these <laughs> actors that we'll see in this film for, you know, his first and second film. But let's talk a little bit about the plot. So it kind of falls into the bucket of the power of friendship at any age, as well as we're introducing in this sequel the idea of friends who travel together stay together. So we're transplanting the girls from their kind of, home cities in the US and they're going on a trip to Italy. Very popular thing to do. Uh, So yes, four friends after surviving the pandemic and keeping up their book club via Zoom decide to go on a trip to Italy that they'd planned many, many years before but never taken. You know, it's the road, untravelled, all of that. Uh, And ostensibly it's because uh, one of the characters is engaged and so it's a bit of a, a hen's party, bachelorette trip, that kind of thing. And of course, nothing goes smoothly. Hijinks ensue, misunderstandings, all of that. So it's a pretty solid tried and true formula. And one of the big things it's doing is obviously cashing in on the familiarity of the names that we've got in the film. So we've got our Diane Keaton, as I mentioned before, Jane Fonda, Candace Bergen and Mary Steenbergen. So quite the roster there. uh, And I think that's definitely part of what they're playing off of as well. They want people to come along and see this because they like one or all four of these actresses. 
So I literally do not remember their character names. That's going to give you a bit of a hint about how I felt about the film. Um, because, and you know, the film doesn't care about that. You're there to be like, oh, what's Diane Keaton doing yeah. now? What's, what's Fonda up to? So, you know, it doesn't really bother making the characters much more than that. They're a little bit paper thin. Uh, so They're all I, just recently divorced in my mind, like instantly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> if only this were the first wife. Yeah. Um, yeah. So this was shot in location, so we do get some really nice Italian landscapes, Italian city. We go through the cities of Rome, Venice, and we end up in Tuscany. And I do think it does something sequels do a lot, which is new location, will breathe life into this, you know, the sequel, will take them somewhere different, fish out of water. And, look, it, it does go a long way to help the film. Like, everyone loves something set in Italy right now. Um, but it's not quite enough. We'll get to that. We'll get to that. Um, so in addition to these four leading ladies, we've also got uh, some other big names in supporting roles, Don Johnson, Craig T. Nelson and Andy Garcia. So we're kind of, you know, the casting manager for this one was uh, well-connected. <laughs> Was Pierce Brosnan unavailable? Yeah. Well, I, I, he was off doing that superhero thing he was doing. Uh, right, so, yeah. you know, he's, he's on a different track in life <laughs> right now. Um, yeah, so overall thoughts. Um, it's frothy. It is the light entertainment that I was after, but quickly forgotten. I saw it a couple of days ago. It's already, it's already it's half gone. Yeah. <laughs> it's already half gone. Um, the ingredients seem pretty sound, like actors, you know, exotic setting, some heartwarming story elements, but I can't say that it was good. Yeah. <laughs> um, a lot of that just didn't quite connect. Um, In terms of the, the writing, the performances? Kind of both, unfortunately. Yeah. Like, these women can act, right? Like, Absolutely. we've seen it. They've done it. Mm. But uh, some of this was just wooden as, and I think part of that's the writing, little bit lacking chemistry as well. I think, I mean, maybe if I'd seen the first film, I'd know the women better and I'd feel more connected and understand the friendship. But I do think when you're doing a film that centers around a group of friends, mm. especially in a movie, like when you don't have multiple episodes of, say, a TV show to get you to love the characters and see the friendship form, that you have to believe that they like each other. Mm. And I just, I'm not to say I don't think these women got along, but, you know, when they're having a big group hug and they're like, oh, I love you guys, it's like... You need to be able to feel yeah, that that's the emotional real. stakes need to be a bit higher. Exactly. So, and that was a little bit of a shame for me. I also think in terms of the writing, like the comedy, it was patchy. So Some of the reviews that I've been reading say, yeah, that the jokes in particular sort of fall oof, flat a little bit. Absolutely. Like there's a couple of really well done entendres. Like there's a whole range of entendres to pick from. Like this is definitely the range of comedy we're going for, like a double, double entendre, entendre kind of thing. Um like for everyone that hits the mark, there's another one that's just like fallen wooden on the floor and you're just like, oh, my God, can I please forget that scene just happened? Mm. Let's move on. What else have they got in store for us? So, And for every like refreshing turn that it takes where it's giving these women a space to be seen as something more than someone's grandmother or someone's mother, like it's not pitching these women for their role in someone else's lives. It's pitching them for people and then their lives happen around them, if that makes sense. And I think... That's why I hesitate to rip the film too much of a new one because I do think it's doing something where often women of this age, the roles they get are a side character to someone else's journey Mm. or they're supporting someone else's development or growth or it's about how is this person supported such and such. Mm. And I think at least something this movie is doing is there's 
roles and stories centered around these women living their lives and you know they have sexuality and they find love at an older age and it's not the film does respect them like mm. it's not making them the butt of some easy joke of like oh they're old like yeah. <laughs> you know let's look at these old women in Italy like there are jokes in there, but the, the women are in on the joke. Like, yeah. they're part of it. It's not a film that's there to make fun of older women trying to live their lives and have fun. But just because you're respecting your characters doesn't necessarily make it, like, great chemistry or entertaining or funny. Sadly, the writing doesn't <laughs> magically transform, even if you have great intentions. Yeah. Well, um, what a pity, because there's a difference, isn't there, between, like, light and fluffy and, like, a tasty foam. Yeah, yes, exactly. It's like you could leave feeling super fulfilled by like the big plate of, you know, lollies you had, mm. or you can just eat something and just feel like, oh, that was a mistake. <laughs> and this, this might be putting you on the spot a little bit, but when you went into the cinema, as you mentioned, hoping for that kind of uplifting experience, would there be sort of films or shows recently that would have given you that uh, experience? Ooh, that's a good one. I do think that this kind of film hasn't been done that well for a long time. Yeah. Like there is a bit of a renaissance now of... Like, there's another film out at the moment in the cinema called 80 for Brady about a bunch of Patriots fans who are older women who go to, like, the Super Bowl to meet Tom Brady. (laughs) And, you know, there's another film, Diane Keaton's also in, uh, where they all form, like, a cheerleading group. Poms? Yeah, Poms. Mm. (laughs) So I think in terms of this picture film, they're really trying hard to do that well. Mm. But, like, you know, I mentioned First Wives Club before. Like, that kind of film that came out in the 90s, and, again, like, There's a lot of problems with that, and this movie also falls in the same trap of, like, those films aren't also winning a lot of awards for diversity or realism. Mm. Like, this film, as well as many of the well-done films in this genre, are affluent white women, like, living affluent lives uh, in set. Like, this movie, I'm pretty sure I don't remember seeing a person of colour or any kind of diversity, really. Um, And that's what the film's doing. Like, in some ways, I'm like, I'm not looking to it for a deep you know, uh, thesis on racism. Mm. But (laughs) I do think a lot of the good films, you know, even silly things like, um, I was going to say Father of the Bride, but again, that's really more about Steve Martin than (laughs) it is about any of the women. Um, First Wives Club is probably one, and also because of the Keaton connection. But that's kind of what I want to see, like something that was entertaining and fun that you could you'd want to rewatch. And as they get on, you don't want to see Jane Fonda wasted. You don't want to see Diane Keaton wasted. And that mm. was part of the shame as well, I think. Yeah. Where I like find the silver lining in when a film like this is so disappointed with like incredible actresses, I'm like, well, I hope they had a fantastic holiday. You know? Yeah. I hope that they were like, <laughs> I've worked hard. The industry, like it's, you oh. know, how it treats women. It's just like, let's just go to Italy. I could give a damn about the script. Absolutely. I, I, these women have probably been through the trenches in their exactly. career. They get a trip to Italy. They cash that check. Good. Like they've cashed two checks, one for book club and one for the next chapter. <laughs> like no shade on that at all. I agree. I hope they had a great time at least filming it. Wish that had come through in <laughs> that film. But yeah. uh, and I do, I do think as well, like we'll, I want to see more films like this attempted to be made, I suppose. Yeah. Like, mm. Let's keep, let's keep trying. Uh, and like I said, I think, um, yeah, sorry. Oh, no, I was just going to ask, can you remind me who wrote it again? Did you say? Oh, no, sorry. Maybe. I, didn't. I, I don't actually know. I yeah. suspect uh, Holderman may have had a hand. Um, yeah. You know, the writing didn't hit that much. I was like, don't even need to know. Maybe more women it. of that age writing the script. So. And I feel like there was maybe some input. Like, they probably did talk to these women about... Mm 
you know, what are some of the things you want? Because there was a couple of lines where I'm like, I feel like that's come that the moments that felt real, mm. I think, were probably authentic things that were brought in from the actors. Uh, and there were a couple of moments that I was like, oh, that's a nice little. Yeah. It's a nice little moment. That's a nice little bit of reality about being in this phase of life. I mean, I'm talking about them like they're Jerry. <laughs> <laughs> they are older. And, like, and so I hold that's their the point hands. Of the movie. This <laughs> is the movie. This is the absolute point of the film. So, Well, it's, the book, it's book club, the next chapter. I suppose we'll wait for book club epilogue. <laughs> yeah, I guess it'll yeah, be book club, five, you know, uh, acknowledgements. <laughs> uh, and we look forward to seeing Bill Holderman on the Oscar stage winning Best Connected. <laughs> Uh, Megan McHugh, thanks very much. Triple R. You've been listening to a podcast of the best bits of The Breakfasters, which is the Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Feel free to get in touch with Breakfasters via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or via the Triple R website.